Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer. Each month I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Fagenbaum. Dr. Fagenbaum is the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network, CDCN. He's also an assistant professor of medicine in translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. And besides that, he's an associate director of patient impact for the Penn Orphan Disease Center. Dr. Fagenbaum is also a patient battling idiopathic multicentric Castleman's disease. Through the CDCN, he has spearheaded the collaborative network approach, which we will talk about in a few minutes. I have to say that Dr. Fagenbaum is a bit of a rock star in the rare disease circles. He's won many awards for his work and speaks at multiple conferences. In fact, he'll, he will be at the upcoming Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit in San Diego on September 18th to the 20th. We hope to see you there. David, is there anything else you'd like to point out before we get started with your story? Kevin, I just want to thank you for having me on your podcast and giving me the opportunity to, to share about the work we're doing for Castleman disease, but also how we can think about sharing our message of hope and, and what we've learned for Castleman disease uh, with many other rare diseases to your listeners. Excellent. So maybe a good place to start would be to tell our listeners about Castleman's disease. Sure. It's a rare immune system disorder where the immune system becomes hyperactivated and then begins to attack and shut down the body's vital organs. So patients like myself, I was a healthy third-year medical student, and then within days, I was hospitalized in the intensive care unit with my vital organs shutting down, my liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow, my heart, and my lungs all shutting down for no known cause. Um, so this disease can really strike out of nowhere. It can affect individuals of all ages. And we call it idiopathic, multicentric Castleman disease because we don't know the cause. Idiopathic, we don't know what causes the immune system to do what it does. Uh, there are about 5,000 new patients diagnosed each year in the U.S., which makes it about as common as ALS, so rare but not one of the rarest uh, of diseases. And unfortunately, my subtype, the idiopathic multicentric variant, about a third of us will die within five years of diagnosis and another third within 10 years of diagnosis. So we um, are pushing forward the science and the research we're doing to try to change those numbers as quickly as we can. Wow. So 5,000 people a year, and they're facing a very short time frame to, to, to find something to do about this. That's um, exactly right. And so for you personally, kind of from your life, how did this affect you? I, I know your story is pretty intense, but I think it would be worth sharing here so people would know what Absolutely. happened to you in that third year of medical school. Yeah, it's um, the disease is, you use the word intense, and I think that's a good way to describe it. It's intense and it's episodic. So um, you have these 
episodes of multi-organ failure where everything is shutting down. The only way you can stay alive is through medical technology keeping you alive, dialysis, transfusions, chemotherapy, drugs and treatments to keep the body alive despite um, what the immune system is doing to the body. And so it's really intense um, and patients like myself get incredibly ill. I was actually so sick back in 2010 that I had my last rites read to me because my doctors didn't think I would survive. I said goodbye to my family. A priest came in to administer my last rites. Uh, of course, I was too sick to, to be able to remember much from that experience, but I do know that it was a scary time for myself and for my family. Um, fortunately, chemotherapy saved my life that day, but unfortunately, I would go on to have many, many more relapses. And so for me, I'm either totally healthy like I am today running a research lab in, a, in an organization focused on curing Castleman disease, but within a matter of days, I could be back in the intensive care unit on life support um, fighting for my life. And so it has not only has Castleman disease um, just destroyed plans and, and, and months of my life where I spent months hospitalized, but it also has created a sense of urgency within me, um, knowing that, you know, tomorrow is not guaranteed and that, uh, very quickly I could be, could be back in the hospital. But I, I think that sense of urgency is, is a lesson, or at least it's a sense that many of us with rare diseases have, um, whether it's a genetic syndrome or, or not, there are, you know, many of us that, that live day to day knowing that we have a terrible disease and that gives us a sense of urgency that, um, that I think is, is really explain, is really the reason that so much progress is being made right now for rare diseases. And that's because us patients are, are joining together, banding together to fight back. Yeah. I think that urgency and that focus are two of the superpowers that patients, particularly rare patients, you know, bring to the table. Yes. So let me ask, how did you actually get started in doing the research yourself? Wasn't there something out there? Wasn't somebody else doing something? Yeah. So I was a third year medical student when I first got sick and spent about six months hospitalized. I eventually, um, got out of the hospital after multi-agent chemotherapy, put my disease in remission. And just as you said, I knew there were other people doing research. So I went back to medical school and I, I kind of thought that maybe Castleman's was something that some other researcher somewhere could work on. You know, what could I really do as a medical student to make a meaningful difference? And I assumed, you know, there must be other people working on it. And there were a few other groups that were working on it. But shortly thereafter, I ended up relapsing on the only drug that was in clinical development for the disease, a drug called siltuximab. And when I relapsed, I learned that there were no other drugs in development, that there were no other promising leads of anything, nothing um, that anyone was pursuing that could potentially help me or other patients with my disease. And that's when I realized I couldn't I could no longer just wait and hope for someone somewhere to figure out a solution for me that I needed to get involved. I needed to, to get in the driver's seat. And so early on, that really was just an organizational role. I wanted to connect all the researchers and physicians and patients worldwide um, so that we could prioritize and crowdsource the best research um, through a foundation I started called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. But as I dove deeper into the science and what was known about Castleman disease, what was not known about Castleman disease, I became more and more interested with, with getting involved and in actually doing the work myself and, and 
actually working in the lab and eventually um, what I do now is, is run a research lab that's a translational research lab. So there's both um, basic science, bench lab, traditional research, but there's also computational research done um, at the same time. And that sort of back and forth um, has been super valuable for better understanding Castleman disease. Well, that's really interesting, bringing those two different types of technology together, the traditional research and the, the computational. I'd be interested sometime, you know, maybe when we see each other out in San Diego, I'd like to hear what you're doing on the computational side. Yeah, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. Yeah. So once you got started and you got into this, what was like the biggest obstacle that you hit? What challenges did you face and, and how'd you overcome it? So there were a lot of challenges early on. Um, there's still a lot of challenges um, that, that we're facing and that we're, we're constantly trying to overcome. Um, picking one is not easy, um, but I would probably say if you if I had to pick one challenge, I think I would say that there's a general um, tendency within medical research for people to work in silos, for groups at one institution to work with people at that institution and to not work um, with collaborators outside. There's a tendency for people within one disease to only focus in that disease and not pay attention to the nearby diseases. Um, so there's this unfortunate tendency towards not collaborating. So um, note, recognizing this early on that, that groups were not collaborating. There were people in Japan and France and across the United States that were kind of dabbling in Castleman disease research, but no one was actually working together or sharing what they were finding with one another. And so it became really clear early on that if we wanted to really make progress, we needed to make collaboration a key part of what we did. And we even put it in the name of our organization, we're the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. And, and it, we're not just collaborative in our name, we've really tried to live up to that by making sure that we connect the right researchers with the right samples, the right studies at the right time, and that it's all about connection and it's about making sure that, a word you used earlier, focus. So it's you know connecting the right people, focusing them on the right projects, and then providing the resources that they need um, to make as much progress as possible. But, but collaboration and being more collaborative um, is certainly something we wanted to do and something that we've, we've worked on, but it's not easy. And we're always working on trying to figure out ways that we can promote more collaboration within our particular uh, rare disease. Well, yeah, I think that you, you mentioned something there. Well, you mentioned two things. One is just the energy it takes to pull people together and get them out of those silos. But then you also mentioned providing resources. What kind of resources are you able to provide and, and where do those resources come from? How, how did you kind of ramp that up? Yeah, so early on those resources, um, we raised about $10,000 the first year the CECN was around. Um, and so, and the only samples we had were from two patients, myself and one other patient were contributing samples. So, so I think you could probably say we started from scratch. You know, there was, there was very little money and there were very few patient samples to work on. Um, but we leveraged that first $10,000 in those first couple patient samples to ask important early questions about the disease and to start to generate some really early basic information um, and to be able to show that we could do research in, in the lab and that we could you know, generate meaningful insights even from relatively small dollar amounts. Um, and from those first $10,000 and the first two patient samples, we were able to generate some interesting insights and then we moved to a study where we could do six samples. Um, that study cost about $27,000 and so that was almost three times as much 
much money, but in the world of research, it's actually typically considered quite a, a small amount. But we did a really interesting and important study with those $27,000. We learned a lot more about Castleman disease with that small study and that small study of they cost $27,000 and had six patient samples. Um, we were able to use that to get interest from partners who wanted to fund a larger study um, doing a similar similar sort of work, but in a larger number of patients uh, called serum proteomics. And it, for us, it was really just taking small steps. And I think that you know, if we started out by saying, man, we have to climb this mountain, this is a huge mountain, how are we ever going to get to the top of the mountain? Um, I think we probably just wouldn't have ever climbed it. But I think we said, you know, let's take this first step. And the first step's not going to be easy, but we're going to take the first step. And, and we took it. And we worked really hard on that first step. And, and you know, we, ma we made the first step. And then we said, okay, we've done one step, let's take a second step. And so, over the course of the last seven years, we have been able to climb a good bit up this mountain. We still have work to do, and we still have a lot more to learn about the disease. But because we've really broken it down into a step-by-step -step basis, um, I think that we um, have been able to make a lot more progress than if early on we got overwhelmed by just how much work we had ahead of us. And that's just so emblematic of how, how science builds knowledge anyway. It's all exactly. It's iterative. And I think, so my listeners know that I came out of industry and there, you know, $27,000 probably got spent since, <laughs> you know, the afternoon coffee break. Um, but the, you know, the, the fact is, is that because you were resource constrained, mm -hmm. you were forced to look for the right steps to do. And there were probably was a, a lot more efficient, if not smaller scale. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with you. You know, sometimes um, what's the saying? Uh, necessity uh, breeds innovation. You know, it's you know we we were resource constrained. We we didn't have the luxury of lots of of lots of resources and lots of time. And those constraints, I think, really focused us. And um, I argue quite a bit and and really promote quite a bit the concept that you know we need to make every dollar count in the rare disease space because we have fewer dollars than more common diseases. So every dollar really needs to go go quite far. And, and Sometimes people will say, well, what about in the common diseases? And I think they're absolutely right, too. We need, we need to be more efficient generally. Um, it's not that we, uh, we need less funding. We, everyone needs more funding, but we also need to make sure that each one of our dollars um, goes further than, than it has gone. Absolutely. And I think it's, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing that, that revolution happen through people like you. So tell me, you know, here we are in August of 2019. Um, you said it was 2010 when you had your first uh, episode. Um, and so what is the state of the research now? What's going on? So um, I ended up identifying a drug back in 20, the early 2014, a drug that had never been used before for Castleman disease. It was developed for kidney transplantation. Um, and based on the work I did in my lab, I thought that drug could work for me and to maybe prevent relapses. And just to give you um, perspective on where I was in my journey, I had five, I've had, a, I had had five deadly relapses of this disease um, with spending weeks in the hospital with each one of them in the first three and a half years uh, before I identified this drug that I thought might work. I started myself on it in 
early 2014. And now it's been five and a half years since my last relapse. So five deadly relapses in the first three and a half years, none in the last five and a half years. And what I'm really excited beyond just the fact that, that you know, I'm alive and that I've been able to prevent these deadly relapses um, and I've been able to, to get married and have, have a daughter with, with my incredible wife, B- bigger and more important than that is that we've now been able to repeat a number of the experiments we did on my samples and other patient samples. We found similar signatures that suggest that this drug might work for other patients. And we've just begun a clinical trial just last Monday here at the University of Pennsylvania to enroll patients into a clinical trial of this drug to see if this drug can actually work to help other patients. We know anecdotally from a few other patients that have been treated off-label with this drug that it, it can also help some other patients. Unfortunately, it has not uniformly helped every patient who's gotten it, but we're really excited and optimistic about this trial to understand the proportion of patients that will respond and what kind of patients are likely to respond. So, so with that, we're, we're more optimistic than ever about our future um, because we've made a lot of progress, but we're also realistic and we recognize that there's still a lot of work ahead for us. So you can tell us a little bit more about that medicine, that drug, um, which I know is serolimus. That's right. And uh, also known as Rapimune. How does it work? And, and how did you have the hunch that it would work for you? Yeah, great, great. It, it wasn't much more than a hunch, I have to admit. It was, um, it was early days, and, and it was limited data available, but, um, but it was enough because there was nothing else that had any more data um, in support of it. So it was the best hunch that I had. But basically, um, serolimus works by inhibiting the mTOR signaling pathway. And mTOR is critical to just about every cell in your body for it to proliferate. So if cells want to divide, uh, proliferate, um, if cells want to become, if immune cells need to become activated, they need to, t- they need to turn on this communication line within, their, within the cell that enables it to divide, to proliferate, to, to, um, to do well. And um, unfortunately, immune cells will often crank it up quite a bit and that'll help them to propel it also or, or, or to proliferate. Um, that pathway, the mTOR pathway, is really important for T cells in particular to become activated and also for a particular protein in the blood that makes new blood vessels called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. It, the mTOR pathway is critical for both of those things. Well, in my data from back in 2013, I'd been running experiments on my samples monthly leading up to my last relapse. And from those, those experiments that I had run, I found that, the, that the, my T cells were activated, that VEGF was elevated, and I found in my lymph node tissue that the mTOR signaling pathway was cranked up. And so as I looked at these data and I thought about, you know, what do they mean? What can we do with, with these data points? And I, and I realized that this one drug, serolimus, actually can target all three of those things at once. It can inhibit the mTOR pathway, and in doing so, it can turn down T-cell activation, and it can suppress VEGF expression. So the three things I was finding in my data um, th- that seemed to be interesting but also seemed to be different from other, others w- w- 
were some were things that could be targeted with the exact with a single drug, kind of like three birds with one stone. And so I shared the data with um, with my colleagues, in particular Tom Aldrich at the NIH, and also Fritz Van Rie at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. And we talked about the potential that this drug could have. It had never been used before for Castleman disease, but it was already FDA approved. And so we all agreed that since I had failed everything that had ever been tried for Castleman disease, nothing had worked for me. Um, we were in a in a zone where we needed to try something. And so I started on it back in early 2014. And as I said, it's been over five and a half years that I've been in remission. That's fantastic. I mean, that's the, that's the story that people go, wow. And you just dug through the data and you saw that and, you know, Eureka, I mean, it was kind of a slow Eureka, but Mm -hmm. it was a, you know, and then to take the chance and you, you talked about how you were in a position where you needed something, other things hadn't worked. This was approved drug. You knew what the safety profile was. Let's do it and see what happens. And five and a half years later, we get to talk to you. So that's great. Um, so just let me, I want to let my listeners know who, who may not understand what just happened there, but we call this type of drug hunting repurposing, where an, an approved drug is looked at maybe by the the originating company or maybe by somebody else independently like you've done and another use is found for it and therefore hope is brought to patients who may not have had it before and it's a it's a much more efficient way to work with these smaller populations because you can do some of the the science um, in the clinic and and bring them some hope and that could lead to other things so um I just wonder, what have you learned about the pros and the cons of this repurposing strategy as you're right in the midst of it? Yeah, these are great questions. I'm glad that you've, you've highlighted that for your listeners. Uh, I think of drug repurposing as one of the greatest hopes that we have in the short term to help patients as quickly as possible. As, as you said, these are drugs that are already FDA approved for something. F- about 1,500 drugs are FDA approved and available at your nearby pharmacy. However, there are still 7,000 rare diseases without any treatments, or 95% of the 7,000 diseases don't have any treatments. So a huge number of, of diseases have no drugs, yet there are a number of drugs that already exist that are approved for something. And so, as you said, drug repurposing is all about asking the question, of these 1,500 drugs, how many of them might have some activity, maybe they can treat, maybe they can even cure some of these 7,000 diseases that don't have any options. And so I'm a, I'm a living, breathing example of a drug that was developed for a totally different disease. It is approved for a different disease, and no one had ever thought to try it for my disease. However, based on the data that we generated and the new tools that are available to us that never existed before, Based on those tools and these data, we were able to identify a signaling pathway that this drug targets and then be able to say, let's try this for Castleman disease. And so, you know, what I really want to encourage and, and what, I, what I talk about a lot 
and I, and I ask this hypothetical question, how many of those 1,500 drugs that are already, already FDA approved may be treatments or cures for those diseases without any? And I think it's our job and our responsibility um, to begin to dive into that and to understand and study how many of those existing drugs may be treatments for patients tomorrow as opposed to, to 10 or 15 years from now. Um, but to your question around the pros and cons, I think the biggest challenge for drug repurposing is that there are very few incentives in place to actually have it happen. So basically, when you think about drug companies that get a drug approved, there is a lot, there are a lot fewer incentives to get a secondary indication or to show that this, that your drug is effective for another disease than it is to get the drug approved in the first place. Because once it's approved, it can be used off-label, it can be used for the primary indication or for any, any use. Um, but there's very little incentive to study whether this drug is effective in other diseases once it's already approved, especially if that secondary disease is a rare disease where there's a small market and it's unlikely to make, uh, make very much revenue. So, um, so unfortunately, there are very few incentives. Um, from a scientific research perspective, everyone's really interested in developing a new drug or a new technique for treating disease. Um, but generally, people are a little bit less interested in, in looking at these old drugs or these existing drugs. And again, I think that we um, as a medical community need to need to think a little bit more about these existing drugs. And it, it may not be um, quite as glamorous uh, as developing a new drug or a new technique or a new treatment. Um, but boy, does it have the potential to help patients in the short term. And that's really, you know, that should be our guiding light. Um, as far as the pros go, you know, these drugs are available right away. So this drug was at my CVS just down the street. I just, just no one had ever thought to try it. So, um, you know, how many more drugs are just sitting at the CVS for all these patients with rare diseases that walk past them and don't even know that their treatment is, is right there? So, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, the incentives don't exist, but the pros are that these things can be available right away. And the other really big pro is that there's a well-established safety profile. That's something you mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast is that it's great when you can take a drug where you know that it's been given for 25 years and you know exactly what you can expect. You know what the long-term side effects look like. You know what the short-term side effects look like. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with new drugs, you, you really don't have any idea what, what it's going to look like long-term. Exactly. And you talk about the incentives. I know that being an industry, when you look at a strategy for a new drug, you actually look at several different options for what, what's our second indication, what's our third indication, fourth indication. And what happens is they get all prioritized and then it's yep. kind of a, a list of diminishing returns to the exactly. company. And that's where the incentives fall down, I think. That's and exactly I really right. think, and what I'd like to see is having patients involved in those discussions, particularly from rare from the, the rare disease space in those discussions to say, well, here's what you could do early on or what you could have somebody do because the originating company doesn't really need to do all the work. They need to give the supplies and the permission for it. And they're usually welcome, you know, welcome ideas and they'll let people go and do some experimentation, but it is true. It's the incentives aren't quite there to, to, to pay for these things even after they, they are shown to work. So it is a, you know, it's kind of a puzzle we have to, we have to solve here and we will. Um, so I'm going to let you talk about the collaborative network approach that, that CDCN is, is 
doing now? I know that you're trying to get it out to other rare diseases and create a model that other mm-hmm. people can pick up. So can you tell us a little more what you're doing? Sure. So when I first got into the rare disease space, I shared with you that the first challenge that we faced really was around collaboration. Um, the, the second is that research, the kind of the status quo for research um, and for foundations like ours was to raise money and then invite researchers to apply for how they want to use the money. And then you select the best applicants. Um, and unfortunately, in the Castleman disease space, that really hadn't gotten us very far because there were very few Castleman researchers. So there are you know, only a couple people applying each year, and they, they certainly um, uh, were not applying for, um, let's say, the best idea in the world, and they certainly were not necessarily the, the most qualified researcher in the world to do those studies. And so what you have is a situation where for rare diseases, we kind of have to hope that the right researcher at the right time applies for the right project. And when you only have a couple people applying, it's quite unlikely that all those things are going to line up. So we decided we wanted to really flip the model. And so rather than raise money and invite researchers to apply to use the money how they'd like to use it, we decided to build a network of physicians, researchers, and patients and then crowdsource amongst that network. So we sent out a series of surveys to understand what research questions need to be answered, what research studies could be done to answer those questions, and what researchers were they aware of that were doing those studies that could actually answer those questions. And so basically we're getting away from what do you want to do in your lab to asking the whole community of patients, physicians, researchers, what needs to be done. And then we went out and began to recruit the best researchers in the world to do those studies, whether they knew Castleman disease or not. And so this approach to basically say, we're not going to hope that the right researcher applies at the right time. We're going to figure out the right work to do. We're going to recruit the right researcher to come do it. And we're going to provide the resources needed so that they can do it successfully. That is what we call the collaborative network approach. And a really critical piece of it is is, is the, the collaborative aspect I just described. But another important component is using the data you learn from these important studies to ask questions about off-label drugs, drugs that are already FDA approved for something that might be able to be used for this disease. So every experiment that we get back, every study we finish, we ask the question, is there a drug that might be able to have an impact on this disease based on what we just learned? And of course, we would never go out and give a patient a drug just based off of one experiment, but we always want to have that mindset that we're not just doing research for research's sake. We're doing research because we want to gain information that's going to lead to something meaningful for patients. And so that's what the collaborative network approach is all about. It's about harnessing the community It's about getting that community to collaborate with one another, focusing them in on what work needs to be done, and then making sure that as they're doing work, they're always thinking, how could this possibly be turned into a new drug or a new option for patients that don't have any? And so how would people find out about this and get involved in it Um, and how, you know, perhaps from other disease areas or from Castleman's? It's a great question. So right now, the the best place, or there's probably two places that um, that more information can be learned. The first is that um, my group recently published a paper. It's in the medical literature about what we call the collaborative network approach. Um, if, if you're interested in reading a medical article, then that's certainly um, one way to learn about it. We go into pretty extensive detail about what we've done. Um, the second way is that I've actually recently written a book 
called Chasing My Cure. And it's all about the approach we've taken to research, the steps that we've gone through um, to, to make the progress we have. And it really kind of serves as a blueprint for anyone who wants to accelerate research or treatments for their particular disease. So anyone can check out that book as kind of a, a guide marker or a map for how to push forward science. But also on our website, ChasingMyCure.com, there's a page dedicated to it, to what we call Chasing Cures. So ChasingMyCure.com slash Chasing Cures actually has a lot of this laid out. You know, what are the problems? What are the solutions that we've come up with? And, um, you know, what are some ways that, that anyone fighting a rare disease or that wants to get involved in pushing forward the science for rare disease can follow this really cool new approach to research, which I should also mention is being supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. They're really excited about this collaborative network approach, and they really want to facilitate the dissemination of it really to rare diseases all over the world. That's, that's just amazing. And so where can people find your book or where will they be able to find it? Sure. So it, it will be available at bookstores nationwide on September 10th, but until then, it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Great. So everybody get your Amazon Prime cards out there and, and go for a pre-order. So you're extremely well qualified to do what you've talked about here. You've, you've got a medical degree and a business degree from University of Pennsylvania. And you've got the right mindset, you've got the curious mind, you ask the right questions. You know, for people out there who don't have all those credentials and may not have this experience, this could be intimidating. Um, what message do you have for those people about how to get started? I think the important message is, is something we talked about earlier, and that's kind of taking this one step at a time. Um, if I had looked up the mountain and saw how far I would have to go, I think that I, I would have been intimidated, and I think that, that maybe I wouldn't have, have, have gone up this mountain of trying to identify a drug for myself and others. So try to take it one step at a time. Um, but the, the second and the really important one that I want to get across is that, yes, I'm on a drug based on the work that I did in the lab, and yes, that is something that is, is difficult to do if you haven't worked in a lab before, if you don't have access to a lab, it's basically impossible. But really, I think the reason we've made so much progress is actually not just the work that I've done in the lab, or really not, not the work that I've done in the lab. The progress that we have made, and so much of it really connects back to the organizational steps that I took for the community to connect physicians and researchers together with patients to begin to crowdsource the right research questions to ask, to focus them in on what's most important for patients. These are all steps that actually don't require a medical degree. They don't require being able to work in a lab. They really require focus, dedication, and commitment, something that, that every rare disease patient has. And it, it's a skill set that you don't need a medical degree for to coordinate, organize, and to share your passion. So, um, yes, there are aspects of my story um, that, that really, um, you know, I understand that, that if you don't have access to a lab, you can't do laboratory research. Um, but there are aspects about community building, networking, collaboration that are universal and that anyone, regardless of their medical or scientific background, can play a really important role in. I think that's so uplifting for people. And it's just that, you know, take that first step and see where it leads you. Uh, I think that that's, that's the way all the others, all the other scientists in the world are going to do it. This brand new scientist who's trying to get started now, that's what you do, you take that first step. So is there anything else you'd like to leave with the audience? 
I think that um, one message I'd, I'd like to leave is something that um, maybe I'm preaching to the choir in the rare disease space because so many rare disease patients already have this mindset. But, but one thing that I, I do want to leave with your listeners is, is, that, is this concept of hope is so important when you have a rare and deadly disease. The, the, there's incredible power of hope, the hope that maybe there's a treatment out there, maybe there's a cure out there, maybe there's someone out there who's searching for that for me. That hope keeps us alive, it keeps us fighting, it keeps us um, optimistic. But what I really want to encourage your listeners and, and really the main reason why I wrote this book, um, Chasing My Cure, is because I've realized that and, and I've realized from being on my deathbed a number of times that hope is really important, but hope is best and it's it's most important when it can inspire action. When we use our hope for the future, our hope for health, our hope for a treatment or a cure to inspire us to take action, to say, if I hope for this, I'm going to do that. That's when you can really harness the power of hope, is when you use your hope to turn your hopes into action. And I think that's something, as I said before, I'm a bit preaching to the choir because so many rare disease patients and family members are part of the fight. They're hoping for a cure, so they're taking action to get us closer to a cure. But I, I want to really encourage all listeners, no matter what aspect of your life it may be, to think about your hopes to, to think about what you're wishing for, reflect on those things, and then and then try to ask the question, you know, what what can I do um, to bring that hope for the future closer to being a reality? Perfect place to end our conversation. David, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story um, on our new podcast, Improbable Developments. And I wish you well in your research and your efforts to to involve others and to to inspire others, and on your continued health, um, five and a half years and counting. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on your first uh, podcast as part of this series, and I'm, I'm thrilled that, that we're connected and look forward to seeing you in San Diego Global Genes. Improbable Developments is brought to you by Salem Oaks Consulting, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins who produced this episode.